Well, good morning. My name is J.B. Hickson with Not By Works Ministries. It is Tuesday, July 26th. And normally on Tuesdays, I have the privilege of being on the Christian Underground News Network with Curtis Chamberlain. Uh, it's a standing interview that I do every Tuesday. Uh, however, as you might recall from last week, I mentioned that Curtis is uh, really sick right now. And uh, we were hoping he would be better by this week, but uh, unfortunately, he's still uh, struggling. I texted him yesterday and he said, boy, I'm not feeling well at all. I can't breathe. I can't sleep. I can't really eat. Uh, please keep me in your prayers. And so uh, he's uh, putting a pause on all of the Christian Underground Underground News Network podcast until he is back to full strength. But we do want to pray for our dear friend uh, Curtis. In fact, I'd like to begin uh, the podcast today by lifting him up in prayer. And then I'll tell you what we're going to talk about on uh, today's program. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Curtis and all that he and Pastor Dick are doing through the Christian Underground News Network to advance the message of grace, the message of truth, to take a stand for truth in these troubling times, uh, to, to point people to your word. Uh, thank you for Lucas, also another one of their regular guests, and, and just pray that you'd continue to bless Christian Underground News Network, and specifically today we lift up our friend Curtis and ask that you would restore his health. We pray for healing and strength, and, and Lord, just be with him during this uh, difficult time. Help him to know that we love him and all of his listeners love him and that we're lifting him up in prayer, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I'm going to title this uh, program, The Days of Noah. Now, if you are a Bible prophecy buff, if you like to study Bible prophecy and you read and listen to Bible prophecy experts, you no doubt have come across this uh, phrase, the days of Noah. And it comes from Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse in uh, Matthew 24 and 25. It's actually also recorded in Matthew, I mean, in Mark 13 and in Luke 17, or Luke 21, rather. Uh, but uh, well, I'm going to be kind of focusing on Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. But Jesus makes a statement there in reference to his return that uh, things will be like it was in the like they were in the days of Noah. Well, unfortunately, uh, you know a lot of Bible prophecy experts and people that I greatly respect, who who generally speaking have a, a good, solid, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic and kind of connect the dots of Scripture and of God's plan of the ages correctly. Uh, when they come to this passage, really go off script and 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 really read into Jesus' statement much, much more than what is really there. And so what I'd like to do today is kind of uh, dispel some myths related to this phrase and uh, walk through the context of the Olivet Discourse. And again, I'll be looking at Matthew's account in Matthew 24 and 25 and explain what really is going on in this passage. And I do this with greatest respect because, again, a lot of my friends and colleagues I think uh, take this passage a little bit differently, but I hope you'll see as we go through the text uh, that uh, you know what what Jesus is really saying here, and so uh, I'll get to that in just a moment. So the days of Noah. Well, let's put this in context. Uh, obviously, this is the Olivet Discourse, as I mentioned. We call it that because it's a sermon that Jesus gave from atop the Mount of Olives, and it's the last sermon. Uh, recorded in Scripture uh, that he gave to the general public. It occurred on Wednesday of Passion Week, uh, the day before uh, he gave the Upper Room Discourse to the disciples uh, in the Upper Room, right before he was betrayed and arrested in the garden and ultimately uh, crucified and laid in the tomb on Friday. So this is 48 hours or so before our Lord went to the cross. And in the context of that week, you know, he had, he had come into Jerusalem 
on the back of a donkey. Uh, he had uh, had some scathing uh, things to say to the Jewish scribes and Pharisees and leaders, and uh, he had uh, cursed the the fig tree and, and so forth. And as we get to chapter 23 of Matthew, he, he kind of weeps over Jerusalem and says, you know, how, how much he had longed for them to, to come to him and how, how he had longed to gather them under his uh, wings as a hen gathers her chicks together uh, and so forth. And, and then he, he basically says, you're not going to see me again, Israel, until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a reference there to Psalm 118, that messianic psalm. So just a few days earlier, Christ had come into Jerusalem. A small remnant of people had cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But within days, those cries turned to crucify him, crucify him, and, and they rejected him as a nation and crowned him with thorns instead of crowning him with kings. And so what Jesus is referring to here is, Look, I'm, I'm not going, you're not going to see me until you call on me uh, for salvation, for deliverance into the kingdom. And of course, as Paul would later explain in Romans 9 through 11, that before the nation of Israel can be delivered into the kingdom, they must first individually believe the gospel. And so uh, they rejected Christ. And so then as he's uh, leaving the temple, the disciples who are with him are uh, quite you know, concerned with the words of Jesus, because despite his many clear statements uh, in, uh, you know, his teaching during his three and a half years that he would have to suffer and die uh, first before he could restore the kingdom, including, by the way, just days before this event on the Mount of Olives, as he waited on the outskirts of Jerusalem, ready to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey the next day, Luke tells us in Luke 19 that the disciples at that moment still thought the kingdom was going to, to come immediately. And Jesus, in knowing their thoughts, tells them a, a parable in which a king goes away to receive a kingdom, and he's gone for a long time. And while he's gone, he tells his servants uh, to take care of the, you know, to take care of his business, to do business until I come. In other words, and then he comes back and he rewards them at his return uh, for their acts of faithfulness while he was gone. So Jesus pretty much spelled it out, but yet. The disciples were still obsessed with the kingdom, this long-awaited fulfillment of the messianic kingdom that the Old Testament prophets talked about at length, and they really thought that Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem, throw off the shackles of Rome, and uh, inaugurate the, the kingdom right then. And so here it is, Wednesday night, uh, and and he's the disciples heard what he said to the Jewish leaders about, you will not see me again. They point out the temple kind of nervously and say, you know, Lord, isn't, isn't this temple beautiful? As if to say, it's going to be wonderful when you shortly, you know, take the throne and, and rule this world like you promised, you know, you would. And Jesus then says something even more striking. He says, what are you, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but he says, what are you talking about? Don't you see all these things? Look, not one stone's going to be left upon another uh, until these things will be thrown down. So, uh, you know, he now the disciples are really antsy because how can he rule in a temple that's been destroyed? So again, they they weren't understanding the two phases of Christ's coming. He came once as a suffering servant uh, to redeem mankind. He'll come again as a victorious warrior, as Revelation 19 tells us, to to rule the world in perfect peace and justice and righteousness with a rod of iron. And so when they, the disciples heard him say that about the the temple. They said, well, okay, we're missing something here. And then they ask in Matthew 24, 3, well, then tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, when will the kingdom come? 
And then Jesus begins, in Matthew's account anyway, it's Matthew 24, 4, with his lengthy response, which we call the Olivet Discourse. Now, a couple of key caveats to understand right from the start. Uh, this, of course, is prior to the church age. Uh, the church had not been inaugurated yet. The church, uh, Paul would later tell us, is a mystery, meaning it's something uh, previously uh, undisclosed in the Old Testament, only now being revealed in the New Testament. And at the time Jesus is speaking these words, the day before he's betrayed and arrested, uh, the church was still yet future. It had not been inaugurated. Jesus is speaking to the nation of Israel. He speaks to unbelieving Israel up through chapter 23 verses or chapters 22 and 23 when he keeps talking about you know, how he's going to take the kingdom from them and give it to the future nation of Israel that believes in him and so forth. And then in, in the Olivet Discourse, he's speaking to the future nation of Israel that will be alive when he returns. And because the disciples, who were believers, of course, and would, be, would inherit the kingdom someday, wanted to know more about the timetable. If you're going to destroy this temple, when is the kingdom going to come? Tell us. Tell us more. Give us some signs. And so uh, we need to understand that this is not something that is relevant uh, for, in terms of prophetic significance for the present church age. He's not telling us about the church or the rapture. This is all about the second coming and the second coming in judgment, by the way, as, as we see, we shall see when we go through this passage. I'm going to summarize briefly the flow of thought in the entire Olivet Discourse, which is necessary to understand Jesus' analogy with Noah that, we, that is kind of our focal point for this program. But, uh, you know, it's important to understand the distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. The church is never mentioned, uh, you know, in the Gospels except as a reference to the future when Jesus tells Peter, someday in the future I'm going to build my church, but it's not present during Jesus' earthly ministry. And, and that also means then that the rapture is not mentioned in the, in, in the Gospels. In fact, the only, in the Synoptic Gospels anyway, the only reference, the earliest reference to the, to the rapture is the next day on Thursday night in the upper room when Jesus begins to give, get, give more intimate information and pr provide the, the, his closest disciples there this uh, you know, hope for the future. And he says, look, someday I'm going to go away, but if I go away, I'm going to come back and receive you to where I am. And that's the rapture. In my book, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times, I, uh, I kind of make some parallels in chart form between John 14 and uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, which is when Paul, for the first time, under the inspiration of the Spirit, really explains the doctrine of the rapture. So the rapture, like the church, is a mystery. Paul calls the rapture a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15. Whenever the word mystery is used, it means something that had previously been undisclosed, and is now being disclosed. New revelation. So how can the rapture be new revelation in 56 AD when Paul is, is explicitly revealing it in 1 Corinthians and yet had have it already have been revealed by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse? Well, it wasn't. So uh, I know that many people try to put the rapture in the Olivet Discourse, but as we go through this passage verse by verse today, I think you'll see that what he's referring to here is the second coming, the judgment of Christ at his coming when he comes with a sharp sword proceeding out of his mouth, Revelation 19, and he comes back to inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom 
for Israel, a global kingdom, but a kingdom as promised to Israel nonetheless. So with those caveats, and again, I'm sort of making some statements here. I'm going to prove that point, I think, as I go through the text. So don't just take my word for it. But I wanted you to kind of know where we were coming from. So again, in Matthew 24, let's just start from the beginning. Um, the disciples, uh, with Jesus' scathing rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees still fresh in their minds, they, they point to the temple and they boast about the temple's beauty and grandeur. And then Jesus replies uh, with a stunning prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. Which, by the way, it shouldn't have been that stunning because if the disciples had really understood their Old Testament, they know Daniel the prophet in chapter, Daniel chapter 9 predicted that the temple would be destroyed prior to the coming day of the Lord, the tribulation and second coming. But then in Matthew 24, 3, um, uh, immediately after his pronouncement of judgment on Israel, the disciples then ask, well, when is all this going to happen, this judgment of Israel and your coming and the end of the age and so forth? Their entire focus is eschatological. Um, and uh, he, he, he basically answers their entire question of what is the return, what, when is his return and what are the signs of the kingdom to come in the rest of the, of the, of the sermon. So in, in verses 4 to 14, again, we're in Matthew 24, Jesus begins his response by giving some general signs that relate to the entire future tribulation. These events, or, or that these events uh, take place in the seven-year tribulation is clear from comparing Revelation uh, 6 with Matthew 24, 4 to 14. And also he calls these birth pains. And again, this is where people try to insert the church here. But birth pains is a phrase characteristically used of the tribulation period throughout the Old Testament, such as Isaiah 13, 8, Isaiah 26, 17, Jeremiah 4, 31, and 6, 24. Micah the prophet references this. So the birth pains are not something that are happening now. The birth pains are the tribulation that occurs just before Christ's return. Uh, also, references to the end, quote unquote, in verses 13 and 14, make it clear that this whole Olivet Discourse refers to the entire seven-year period and not just uh, to the first half or the second half, as some people have tried to say. So verses 4 to 14 are general signs in answer to the disciples' question of his return. Then in verse 15, Jesus begins his discussion of the most specific sign of all, and that is the, the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, it will be clear that my return is very near. And it will also signal the intensification of God's judgment on earth. Verses 15 to 26, Jesus talks about those alive at that time uh, should head for the hills if they want to avoid uh, death. Uh, Luke's account uh, includes you know, specific details to the destruction of Jerusalem, which will occur at that time. Uh, not the 70 AD destruction, but the future eschatological judgment at the Battle of Armageddon. So, um, you know, Matthew 24, 15 to 26 kind of gives more specific signs after giving some general signs of what things will be like. And again, if you correlate that to the seal judgment in Revelation 6, it's very clear that this is talking about the tribulation. But after giving those general signs, he give, gets very specific and says, watch out for the abomination of desolation. Now, for those who may not know, the abomination of desolation is something that Daniel talks about again in chapter 9 when he's referring to this final seven-year period before the return of Christ. And Jesus actually quotes Daniel by name in the Olivet Discourse, mentions his name, and uh, 
And he, he talks about the abomination of desolation. What is it? Well, the abomination of desolation, or sometimes called uh, the uh, one who makes desolation, is a reference to the Antichrist who will enter the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation, a three and a half year point, declare himself to be God, and demand that everybody worship him. And so uh, that when Jesus says, when you see that, you know my return is near. Then in verses 27 to 31, Matthew 24, Jesus gives specific signs that will immediately precede his second coming. And these include some cosmic disturbances that will be so great no one could possibly miss his return. In fact, basically he says, if, if anyone is wondering, hey, you know, is this the Christ or is this the Christ? It's not, because when I return, no one will wonder, has Christ returned yet? It will be obvious. He says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then in verses 32 to 35, Jesus uses the parable of the fig tree as sort of a summary illustration of all that he's just said. And he says, just as when you see the fig tree begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. Similarly, when you see all these signs I've just described to you in the first 31 verses, you know that my return is near. So it's just a simple uh, analogy. Uh, and, and, uh, and by the way, understanding the, the use of figures of speech and analogies is the key to understanding the days of Noah that we're going to get to in, in just a moment. Um, and then in, then we get to our focal passage. In verses 36 to 44, uh, Jesus begins to give illustrations. Uh, and actually, the days of Noah goes uh, to verse 42. But he adds on a second little analogy besides Noah about the master of the house and a thief coming into the house. But... Uh, in verses 36 to 44, Jesus gives some illustrations to demonstrate the fact that for many Jews during the tribulation, the second coming will be completely unexpected. Even though they will know the general time frame of his return, they will not know the precise moment. And amazingly, during that time, many will be unprepared for his return in spite of all the supernatural events occurring at that time. And in fact, you know, it's very clear from the number of times in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus warns the future nation of Israel against deception. You know, be not deceived. Many will be deceived. Be careful that you're not deceived. Uh, it's very clear that that is going to be a distinct possibility. That just as at his first advent, many of the Jews were deceived and did not receive him and believe in him for salvation. Similarly, at his second coming, many will reject him. Uh, this is what he's warning against. This is the whole point of the Olivet Discourse. The disciples wanted to know, when are you going to come back and what should we watch for so we know that it's near? And he says, okay, I'll give you some signs, but be careful because uh, the Antichrist is going to be you know, really hard at work trying to deceive the world. And so a lot of people find it hard to understand how anybody could miss the timing of Christ's return since the second coming is so clearly spelled out in Scripture as happening exactly seven years after the signing of the peace treaty. You know, it's a seven-year tribulation that leads up to the second coming of Christ. And so people think, well, then how could someone miss it? Well, you have to consider even his first advent was set to happen at a specific time. Remember, that same prophecy from Daniel that talks about seven years talked first about 483 years and very clearly said from the decree of Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, uh, it shall be 483 years. So anybody that can count 
ought to have been able to predict when the Messiah was going to come. And not only that, the Old Testament prophets also talked about how he would be born of a virgin and born in the city of Bethlehem. Well, I don't know how many virgins gave birth in Bethlehem around that time, but it seems to me there was only one. So again, they clearly should have known when his first coming was, and they missed it. And similarly, at the time of Christ's return, following the tribulation, uh, many will be deceived. So Jesus basically uses the illustration of Noah and then of the householder, and then a couple more after that that I'll get to in a second, to let people know that for many who are alive at his return, his return will catch them off guard and will be completely unexpected. They will have ignored the warning signs. And then in uh, chapter uh, 24, verses 45 to 51, Jesus uses... Uh, the parable of the faithful and evil servant to demonstrate that specifically for many during the tribulation, the second coming will occur sooner than they thought. You know, remember Jesus says, uh, the evil man says in his heart, my master is delayed in his coming. And so I'm going to eat and drink and, and, and profligate and so forth. And then all of a sudden he comes and uh, they weren't ready. And this is again, talking about unbelieving Israel. And he says, they're going to be cast where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which he uses uh, later on uh, to speak of the, uh, you know, reference there to the everlasting fire. So uh, for some people in the tribulation, Jesus comes back sooner than they thought. But for others, according to his next parable, which is the wise and foolish virgins, uh, for many in the tribulation, his return will occur later than they thought. Remember? The, the, uh, the foolish virgins, again, it's a, it's a parable. It's an illustration that Jesus is using. But they didn't bring enough oil in their lamps, and their lamps ran out while they were waiting for the bridegroom. Well, that's a reference to uh, unbelieving Israel. And so then he finishes out the Olivet Discourse with, uh, first of all, the parable of the talents, reminding national Israel that they'll have one final opportunity to do something with the talent they have received. All three of the servants in the parable of the talents represent Israel. Uh, you can compare Isaiah 41, 8 and uh, Luke 1, 54 and so forth. Uh, but this focus is, uh, of this parable is strictly on Israel and her preparedness for the kingdom just prior to Christ's return. And in view of Israel's incredible privilege as the chosen nation of God, the talent stands for all of the resources and benefits that are hers. And the tribulation period is going to provide one last chance for Israel to do something with the talent that she's been offered time and time again throughout history. And those who reject it and do nothing with it at that final tribulation period are going to be cast into uh, the everlasting fire, ultimately the lake of fire. So that's what the parable of talents is about. By the way, the parable of talents is different from the parable of the minas in uh, Luke 19. The parable of the minas is the story that Jesus told as they sat on the outskirts of Jerusalem and the disciples thought the kingdom was going to come immediately, as I mentioned a moment ago. And that's clearly a veiled reference. It's not an explicit teaching about the church age, but it's basically letting the disciples know there's going to be a delay in Christ's return. He didn't explain that that delay was going to be 2,000 years so far, or that it was going to later be called the church age, or that the Holy Spirit was going to baptize Jew and Gentile into one body. He didn't explain all the details, but in the parable of the Minas, Jesus clearly explained there's going to be a delay. And that was uh, you know, a totally separate parable from the parable of the talents. In the parable of delay, the parable of the minas, the one who does nothing with their mina still gets into the kingdom. They just don't get any rewards when they get there. But in the parable of the talents, 
representing Israel, the one who does nothing with their talent, gets cast into the everlasting fire. And then finally, Jesus uh, kind of concludes uh, the Olivet Discourse with a beautiful picture, yet a terrifying picture, uh, of the judgment that will occur when he returns. We call this the sheep and goats judgment. And he says, those who have believed in me, the sheep, I will say to them, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the goats, uh, he will say, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, you know, if we keep the context in mind that, you know, with a dispensational sensitivity, understanding that the church is not even on the radar yet at this point, he's speaking to Israel, about Israel, referring to the signs of his coming to establish the kingdom, then I think the days of Noah reference begins to come into, uh, into clearer uh, focus. So let's go back and take a closer look at that first analogy when Jesus is reminding the future nation of Israel who will be alive at that time, uh, you know, that they better be ready because it's going to catch many of them off guard if they're not ready. And, and let me interject one more little caveat before I dive into this passage. You know, a lot of people, uh, and I find this in, strange, but a lot of people struggle with how Jesus could be giving prophecies here and signs to the disciples in the first century that aren't going to be actually realized until the future. And so far, it's been 2,000 years since then. Well, that's not at all uncommon. In fact, every prophecy in the Old Testament was given to a historical generation in context, but then not realized until many years later. So Jesus and the prophets speak to a historical context, a historical setting to people alive at that time, and they give a prophecy that might not be fulfilled till later. We could you know, think of many examples. Uh, when Micah told them that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, nobody alive in Micah's day saw that. When Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, nobody in Isaiah's day, 700 years before Christ, saw that. Uh, that's the way prophecy works. And so when Jesus is speaking to the disciples and answering the question, what will be the sign of your coming? He's speaking to the disciples as representatives of the nation, of the believing Israel, and he's warning the nation of Israel through the first century audience, and uh, they better be prepared. Uh, and so uh, after the rapture, of course, we're not talking about the rapture on today's program. We're talking about Israel and the second coming, but we know from later revelation in the, in the New Testament that the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, that mystery that is revealed uh, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, we will be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord. We're not supposed to suffer the wrath of God during the seven-year tribulation. Uh, we may have to suffer. We will have to suffer. Jesus made that clear, and Paul also makes it clear that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But we are promised that we will be rescued, raptured, 1 Thess 4.17, prior to the great day of the Lord, that seven-year period. Um, so, you know, uh, we don't have to worry about this, uh, this coming uh, seven-year uh, tribulation, but uh, the, the disciples are sort of the ones on the ground at the time Jesus is giving this prophecy, and the Jews who are going to be alive later, maybe who don't trust Christ now and become part of the church, uh, they're left behind at the rapture, and then all of this unfolds. Jesus is warning them, you better be ready, because otherwise you're going to be caught off guard, and you're going to be uh, deceived. So the analogy of Noah and the flood <coughs> starts in 
uh, Matthew 24, 36, as I mentioned. And <clears throat> in Matthew 24, uh, 36, let's read uh, the passage. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. <clears throat> Again, he's talking about the return of Christ. Even though it's going to occur seven years after the signing of the peace treaty, no one will know the precise day or hour. First of all, it's not entirely certain that the exact moment of the signing of the peace treaty will be common knowledge. You know, it's not like they're going to do it on you know public TV and here's this signing and we know the exact second when the pen hits the paper. Uh, there'll be a peace treaty signed in a in fulfillment of Daniel 9.27, it'll be announced to the world, and, and then the seven-year tribulation will start. But it's not like someone has a stopwatch and is going to know the exact day or the hour of Christ's return. And then he says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, the first thing you need to understand, and this is just basic Bible study methods 101, is that Jesus is using here a figure of speech called a simile. A simile is a comparison, for illustration purposes, using like or as. We see this all over literature, in all languages, but we see it prolifically throughout uh, Scripture. Uh, for example, in, in the Old Testament, we see, As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for thee, David said. Or Proverbs says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. <clears throat> or Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now in each one of these, and I've, there are several others we could look at, um, it, there's a big picture in mind. He's making a point and he's not necessarily implying that every little detail about the analogy is in play. For example, when Paul says the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, he basically means he'll come when you're not expecting. doesn't mean that the Lord is going to be armed and wearing a mask and breaking into a window and tying up the people in the house and all these other things that happen when you have an intruder break into your home. Uh, that's not the point of the analogy. When you see like or as, you need to ask yourself, what is the primary analogy that he is making? <clears throat> He's not suggesting that Everything consistent with, in this case, going back to Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, everything related to a break-in and a robbery is going to be happening in connection to the return of the Lord. Uh, or, when he's, uh, Proverbs, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. What's the point of the analogy? What's the point of the simile using like or as? Well, a word fitly spoken is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful has nothing to do with physical apples or physical gold or physical silvers. It is silver. It is an analogy like apples of gold. Um, as the deer pants by, by the water, so my soul pants for you. What's the point? I long for you, Lord. It's not suggesting that I have, you know, hooves and eat grass and, you know, uh, hide out during hunting season. You know, it's a, it's a simile. It's a comparison using like uh, or as. You know, as the grass uh, and as the flower of the grass withers, you know, uh, the, 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 the word of God will stand forever. It won't stand, it won't wither like that, but it will stand forever. That's in, uh, I think, First uh, Peter. So we see, you know, many examples 
uh, of, of these analogies when the spies went out and to, to spy out the land as they were going into uh, uh, the land of Canaan, that what did they say? They came back and said, boy, the enemy is, is, is they're giants, they're huge. In fact, we were like grasshoppers to them. Now, does that mean that, I mean, although they're like grasshoppers, that means they must be flying around and flitting around and being insects? No, of course not. The point is, as grasshoppers are to a normal-sized human being, in other words, small, so are we to them. So when, when they say that we are like grasshoppers, it just means we're small. So whenever you see a comparison using like or as, and this is true in any language, by the way, English included, you should always ask yourself, what's the main point? What's the comparison being made here? It, it does not, it's not intending to say everything that was true in Noah's day is going to be true and exactly the same in, at the time of Christ's return. And again, you know, the whole point, as we just outlined of the Olivet Discourse, is to give the future nation of Israel signs and warnings so that they won't be caught off guard. When you see the fig tree blooming, hey, you, you know it's close. Pay attention. And then he says, similarly, as the days of Noah were, so it will be like, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. And then he explains what he means. For, and that word for at the beginning of verse 38 is an explanatory for. In Greek, it's the word guards, explaining more clearly what the analogy means. He says, well, in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and, until the Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. They, in other words, they ignored the warnings. And when the flood came and destroyed them, they were caught off guard. And by the way, the flood came and took them all away. That's not talking about taking Noah's family away. And we know that very clearly because in Luke 17, Jesus uses the same analogy, but he it's a different context. Uh, I mean, a different historical time. It's a few days earlier, but he uses the same exact analogy about Noah. And he says, the flood came and destroyed them all. And that's indeed what happened. And that's Jesus' whole point. Just like in Noah's day, people were ignoring the warnings. Noah was out there every day building an ark and warning people, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And they ignored it. Similarly, in the future seven-year tribulation period, there will be those who ignore the signs that I just told you about, Jesus says, and, in, and are swept away in judgment the way Noah well, the way people, unbelievers were in Noah's day. So uh, if you kind of compare the global judge floodment, uh, judgment with the, uh, the global flood judgment with the second coming judgment, the, the parallels are striking. Now, let me just mention a few of them. In the global flood judgment, the world is warned that a flood is coming. In the second coming judgment, the world is warned that the judge is coming, Jesus Christ. In the global flood judgment, there's only one way to avoid the judgment, get on the ark, but they refused. At the second coming judgment, there's only one way to avoid judgment too. Believe the gospel. Believe in me. At the global flood judgment, many are deceived and ignored the warnings. At the second coming judgment, many will be deceived and ignore the warnings as well. That's Jesus' point. At the global flood judgment, those left behind on the earth are the righteous, Noah's family. After the flood judgment, who was left? The righteous to inhabit the earth. 
Similarly, after the second coming judgment, those left behind on the earth are the righteous to whom Jesus says, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. And they repopulate the earth, just like Noah's family did. At the global flood judgment, those taken off the earth are taken away in judgment, swept away by the flood. At the second coming judgment, those taken off the earth are taken away in judgment, cast into the everlasting fire. Same thing, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And at the global flood judgment, the righteous repopulate the earth once the flood waters recede. And at the second coming judgment, the righteous repopulate the earth once the millennium uh, begins. So again, it, it's so clear what Jesus, to me anyway, and I, I think in a plain, normal, everyday reading of the text, it should be clear to everybody, uh, what Jesus is talking about here. Now, again, the, I think the reason people read the rapture into this passage is that after Jesus says, you know, you know, be ready because for many it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. The flood's going to catch them off guard and sweep them away in judgment. He then adds these two interesting little statements. He says, two men will be in a field. One's going to be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. And, and people think that sounds like the rapture. But what's the context? The ones taken are destroyed that's very clear from Jesus' words in Luke 17 and from the context here. The flood came and took them all away. One will be taken, the other left. Same word. So the ones taken are taken away in judgment. Well, at the rapture, we're not taken away in judgment. We're taken away in rescue. We're rescued, snatched away from this present evil age prior to the great day of the Lord's wrath. So the whole context here is about the second coming and what, what, what the mistake that I think uh, people make is they, they, they see Jesus' phrase as in the days of Noah and they stop there. In fact, you know, that's you know, why you see these conferences and these books and these big articles and podcasts talking about as in the days of Noah. And so then they go back to the days of Noah and they find all the different kinds of things that were happening and they say, Jesus said those things are going to happen again here. He didn't say that. He said, in the days of Noah... People were unprepared and did not heed the warning. Similarly, comparison using like or as, at my return there will be people who are unprepared and ignore my warnings. He's not suggesting that things are going to be normal when he, his references to eating and drinking and marrying. He's just, again, that's like the details that go beyond his point. He's just describing what they were doing instead of heeding the warning. Instead of heeding the warning in Noah's day, they were you know, going on with their regular daily life. And some people during the tribulation will ignore the warnings and go on with their regular life. Now, it's not going to be like it was back with Noah. Uh, and that's not Jesus' point. It's, it's separated by, you know, th uh, 4,000 years if the tribulation were to happen today. Uh, you know, the rapture would happen today and then the tribulation to follow. So, he's not saying that everything's going to be the same. What he's saying is their lack of attention to the warning. Uh, just as the world was warned but ignored it in Noah's day, the future tribulation generation will, many will ignore the warning and be swept away in judgment. So I hope that helps kind of clarify some things. So I think if we want to accurately handle the word of God and make an application to the days of Noah, that, that would be, first of all, uh, just as the second coming of Christ 
will will catch many people unprepared, and it will they will not be expecting it because of the great deception. Similarly, the rapture, even though Jesus isn't talking about that here, we can we can make some application in principle about being prepared. And if you're listening to this program today, you need to understand that the Bible goes on to tell us in the epistles that the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and rescue believers. We're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. And, and if you have not trusted in Christ, you're going to be left behind at that point. And, uh, and you're going to be uh, you know, left to face the wrath that's coming. And, and if you haven't trusted Christ now, it's, it's not going to be any easier to trust Christ after the, the Antichrist takes the throne and issues the greatest deception in human history. In fact, Jesus calls it that in, in Matthew 24. So just as the future tribulation generation needs to, if, you're, if they're left behind at that moment, needs to heed the warnings, trust in Christ, and uh, you know, not take the mark of the beast, today, those of us living in the present church age need to similarly heed the warnings. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. So the days of Noah, uh, we can learn a lot from them, both now in the church age and certainly as Jesus directly talks about, the future tribulation generation can learn a lot from the mistakes of those in the days of Noah. Don't ignore the warnings. Trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. Well, thanks for listening. I hope that helped clarify a few things about the Olivet Discourse. And if we can ever do anything for you, feel free to reach out anytime at notbyworks.org or you can call us at 1-800-895-1851. That's 1-800-895-1851. I want to encourage you to continue to pray for our ministry. Uh, We've got a number of uh, things uh, coming down the pike here. We're hard at work on volume two of my book, Spirit of the Antichrist. The first draft is complete. It's in the editing process, and we are still on schedule for an October-November release. Uh, Meanwhile, if you've not picked up Volume 1, let me encourage you to go to spiritoftheantichrist.org. That's spiritoftheantichrist.org. And uh, you can read the preface to the book and see the table of contents. You can also purchase it there. Uh, God is really using this book. I am humbled beyond uh, description at how widespread the attention has gotten to this book and how many thousands, literally thousands and thousands, have been sold. And um, we get requests all the time. Uh, just today, before I recorded this podcast, we uh, got, had someone uh, request 10 more copies. And so it's, uh, it's humbling, and it's humbling because it's a subject matter that is so important. It's been a burden of mine for 15 years, recognizing the manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist as a sign of the times and showing us that we're getting closer and closer uh, to the Lord's return. I like what Jan Markell said in her recent uh, newsletter, we're trending toward the tribulation. Doesn't mean we can pinpoint a date for the rapture and set a date. We don't know when the rapture is going to happen. It's imminent. But certainly we're seeing the signs of the times and setting of the stage for the tribulation. So it ought to really cause us to uh, be, be prepared. So, um, you know, pray for continued uh, reach of that book. I, I love it not only because of the message of, you know, urgency of the hour, but also because I clearly share the gospel uh, at, at a few places throughout the book, but explicitly in the epilogue at the end of the book. And, and many, many unbelievers have picked up copies of this book because they get a lot of the the, the, the tyranny that's, that's rolling down the pike and the globalism and all of those things. And so 
they have a common interest and they say, hey, let me see what this guy has to say about it. And they may never have heard the gospel or may never have heard it you know, clearly. And so the, the Spirit of God is using this, I think, to proclaim the gospel. And I just covet your prayers that he'll continue to do so. So thanks again. God bless and feel free to reach out anytime.